Hello, listeners. I hope you're well. I'm Blake Montgomery, a reporter at Surge, and today we're bringing you an inside look into New School's Venture Fund's 2016 Summit. We have one conversation between EdSurge CEO Betsy Corcoran and Dreambox CEO Jesse Willie Wilson, and another one between EdSurge Managing Editor and Shavar Jeffries, President of Democrats for Education Reform. And one more thing. I want to get to know you better. Would you take a three-question survey for me? You might win an Amazon gift card. Go to bit.ly slash edsurgeonair. It's just the name of this podcast. bit.ly slash edsurgeonair. All one word. I'd appreciate it so much. And if you fill it out, I might answer one of your questions on air. So hi, I'm Betsy Corcoran, and I'm co-founder and CEO of EdSurge, and we are here at the New School Venture Fund Summit. And I'm here with, I have to tell you truthfully, one of my favorite people in the industry, Jesse Willie Wilson, who's CEO and chairman of Dreambox. And Dreambox has had a really powerful effect on the industry. It's a adaptive program, it's a math program, but what I want to hear from you, Mm -hmm. Jesse, is about the role of teachers in using this software. Because sometimes we think, oh, cool, it's a super, you know, complicated piece of software. We don't need the teachers. But you've told me that's not the case. Yeah, so at Dreambox, the the role of the teacher is core to our really philosophy and belief. Um, We know that every child does not have the benefit of having access to excellent teachers every day. And so we wanted to create a software that could emulate the best teacher in the best circumstance with the best resources. Mm -hmm. So that children who didn't have access to that could approach having access to that. And so we developed Dreambox to uh, support great teaching and learning. We developed Dreambox so that a teacher early in practice could use Dreambox while she was trying to become an expert at classroom management. We developed Dreambox Dreambox so that a master teacher who really was a lot closer to the math could leverage Dreambox in a different way with different students. What we've learned in kind of a humble way is that while we endeavor to delight and surprise the student, we kind of left the teacher with less to do. So I think The conceit in the beginning was, you know, teacher at the head of the classroom, student sitting passively. Didn't work so well. So then we said, well, let's engage the student more and we'll do that with learning technologies. And we'll ask the teacher to be a facilitator and a sage. And so the teacher became a facilitator while the child was actively learning. What we actually think through practice that we've learned from feedback from teachers is that the best situation is when the student is fully active, developing and leveraging their own agency in their learning, and the teacher is activated too. And what does activated mean for the teacher? So what it means for the teacher is Dreambox collects about 50,000 data points per student per hour, and we use that to fuel the intelligent adaptive technology so that the child can get the right lesson at the right level of difficulty at the right time, and it continuously and dynamically changes so that they stay in their proximal zone of development. Well, what if we could take some of that data that we use to fuel the intelligent adaptive learning system and actually share it with the learning guardian, with the teacher, with the tutor, the 
parent so that they would know what they could do with Jesse moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day to help support Jesse's exploration and mastery of mathematics. And you're using the huge amount of data you're collecting to help identify which piece of data the teacher needs That's to see, right. right? Because otherwise it feels like, you know, the infamous cockpit of an That's airplane. Right. So it's funny, I had a, a teacher complain to me about this phenomenon she called DRIP, data rich and information poor. Jesse, mm -hmm. don't give me more data. Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks that we don't have data in learning, in, in, in teaching. We have tons of data. We just don't know what to do with it. Right. So what we tried to do at Dreambox is to say, we have to move beyond providing data, DRIP, and to provide actionable information. What would a teacher do with that information to modify her life practice and to help Jesse or Sally or Tommy do better? And how long has this changed, this sort of you know, learning that you've had, how long has that been really a part of what Dreambox is offering? So I think it's been part of our philosophy for a long time, but it hasn't been part of the product um, plan for a long time. So we have a lot of teachers on staff who keep us honest. And those teachers have always said, we have to make sure that we help the teacher get closer to the content. Because as you know, in grade school, teachers aren't experts in mathematics, they're generalists. Mm -hmm. But if they could become closer to the content and more confident about their math knowledge, mm -hmm. we think they'll be better learning guardians. And so we think by sharing this data and actually sharing with them tools that they can use themselves they can use the same learning tools that we designed for children. Teachers can use them. And as they use them, they get closer to the math. And as they get closer to the math, they become better learning guardians. Last question. I know that you in particular set really high achievement bars for yourself, for the company. How close are you to what you want Dreambox to be as a piece of software for supporting teachers, supporting students? So I have two answers for that. So the data says, you know, we delivered 200 million lessons last year. We have 80,000 teachers on the program. We have 2 million K-8 kids. That's great. That's probably ahead of plan. But I don't think that we have achieved everything that we want to achieve. Our goal is to transform learning as we know it, to reimagine learning. We want to unlock the learning potential of every child so that regardless of where they live or what they look like, or frankly, the level of education their parents had, they can achieve greatness in their own learning. And so I don't think that we've achieved that. And the reason why we haven't achieved that is because we only focused on half of the challenge. And half of that challenge is to delight and surprise students. And we've done a good job with that. Now, we need to change, to channel that energy to delight and surprise the learning guardian. And that's harder because we're not a professional learning company, but we know we have a powerful technology that can give nuanced insights into learning moment by moment. And if we can share that with the platform so that the platform suggests the right next lesson for the child, imagine what might happen if we share some of that appropriately with the learning guardian so that they can complement their live practice with what Dreambox is trying to do. Keep that bar high. Keep that bar high, Jesse, and I have a lot of confidence that you'll hit it. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Our kids are depending on it. Thank you so much. But before Jesse left, we asked her one more question. How will we know when the U.S. has succeeded in making education more equitable? We will know that the U.S. has succeeded in making education more equitable 
when the quality of your education is independent of the zip code where you live. It's that simple. We, we have too many pockets of excellence that are completely disassociated with underserved communities. And until it doesn't matter if you grew up in an underserved community to have a great education, until we achieve that, we will not have achieved equity in learning. Next, Tony Wan asks Shavar Jeffries about what education reform means to him and his organization. Awesome. So this morning we have Shafar Jeffries. You are the president, right, for yes. the Democrats for Education Reform. Yes. Now, ed reform, kind of a lo little bit of a loaded word if you're re reading headlines. What uh, what's particular parts of reform do yeah. you, does your organization focus on? Well, you know, we start with the foundational principle that we believe every child is beautiful, every child is amazing, and has limitless potential. And so every child ought to be prepared to fulfill uh, the entirety of his or her potential. And at minimum, uh, that means um, that children need to be college and career ready when they graduate from high school. And so that's the foundational uh, vision that we have. And flowing from that, we believe in a series of things. We believe that parents know their children best, and so therefore parents ought to be able to choose the best school that will serve the unique uh, particularities of their, of their child. Uh, we believe that there will be high world-class standards for our kids in terms of what we expect from them, uh, from our schools. Uh, we believe that teachers are some of the most important professionals and have one of the most difficult jobs in our country, so they ought to be supported, they ought to be paid at, the, at, at, at a higher level, they ought to have world-class professional development. Uh, but then also we have to hold teachers and the entire school and parents and families as well accountable uh, for making sure that we're preparing our kids uh, for their future. And so we also have a vision consistent with those purposes uh, around teacher prep to really uh, reform how it is we prepare teachers to do great things in the classroom uh, because many of our uh, schools of higher education have kind of been stuck in traditions that uh, aren't aligned with uh, you know, 21st century expectations of kids. And we also have a higher ed reform package as well because many of our kids when they get to colleges and universities, uh, we have many colleges and universities that have very low graduation rates. Uh, where kids are leaving with debt and aren't having a diploma. And so we have a series of initiatives where we're pursuing higher ed. Too. What are some of your most visible efforts? Are you helping to um, fund actual programs, build new charter schools? What are some yeah. of your most visible efforts that people well, see? Well, we operate at the, at the intersection of policy and advocacy. And so we are very involved with President Obama and Secretary Duncan in uh, enacting and implementing the Race to the Top program. Uh, we're very involved uh, in the reauthorization of ESEA and what's now called the Every Students, Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, we're very active in our 10 chapters throughout the country on a variety of different policy and advocacy initiatives, including growing charter schools, growing high-quality charter schools and CMOs, fighting against caps on charter schools, uh, supporting and electing uh, policymakers who are going to uh, support uh, the agenda that we believe the evidence shows is, is great for kids. Uh, so we've done everything from enact tenure reform legislation in states like New Jersey. Uh, we work with uh, the administration in Chicago to extend learning time uh, for kids. We increase standards for kids in Massachusetts. Uh, we've been very much involved in New Orleans with um, uh, uh, supporting the, the agenda of John White down there. You know, we, did, we ran some state board elections to get some state board members. Uh, to read, uh, uh, to, to retain John. And so we're very much involved at the policy and advocacy stage because ultimately many of the challenges we have with schools are political challenges. You know, these are public institutions uh, that are responsive to, to interest groups that, that seek to lobby these public institutions. 
And so we want to work to make sure that the interests of parents and families are paramount in that process. Why do you think the discussions about charter schools have kind of become controversial? And are there some kinds of uh, misconceptions about charter schools that you think people sure. have that feel such a sometimes heated debate? Yeah. Well, I think, that, I think they've become controversial because, frankly, the teachers' unions have wanted to make them controversial because uh, the, that, the, the charter schools bring competitive pressure to, to, to the traditional district and to traditional status quo practices um, that can disrupt the entire system. And so I think um, uh, those interests that have been rooted in the way things have been, uh, which have been led by the teachers' unions, uh, they've engaged in a very concerted campaign, a public relations campaign, a communications campaign, a media campaign, a community organizing and advocacy campaign uh, uh, to, to communicate misinformation, disinformation about public charter schools, even the fact that they're public. I mean, people, many people don't even know that they're public schools, uh, but that's been part of a concerted uh, campaign. Now, at the same time, we do have some public charter schools that have not done a great job for kids, and so we have to hold them accountable, just like we hold any school accountable. That's not doing great things for kids. But there's a lot of misconception, misinformation, uh, because uh, those who have an interest in not seeing charter schools thrive have engaged in a very concerted, intentional effort uh, to bring about that kind of misinformation. And those of us who support these programs, we have to, we have to, we have to rebut that and counterpunch. You just uh, wrapped up a session about the idea of accountability. Yes. And I believe the title of the session is Accountability 2.0. Yeah. What's 2.0 versus 1.0? What's well, yeah, that, that says we're focused on the transition from the, the pretty heavy uh, uh, expectations of accountability at the federal level under No Child Left Behind Act and the transition into the Every Student Succeed Act where large parts of the accountability is being pushed back to the states. And so there still is a federal mandate to have annual testing in grades three, three through eight and then once in high school. But NCLB also uh, uh, imposed remedial um, mandates when children weren't performing at a high level and even when subgroups of children weren't performing at a high level. And that was something that was very new. Now states simply have to have to require uh, students to be tested on an annual basis but if certain kids are, are consistently doing poorly um, uh, whether that's individual kids, whether that's subgroups of kids, whether it's English language learners or whether it's low-income families or children of color, um, uh, you actually don't have to do anything. So you just have to have the data that the kids aren't doing well. Uh, but accountability 1.0 was now do something, intervene in a way to turn that around. Uh, but because of concerns about a heavy federal hand and strong federalism uh, uh, imperatives in our country, uh, now simply get the data and then you figure out what you're going to want, what you're going to do. And and so uh, that's something we're very concerned about because that then becomes a political problem. I mean, what? You know, what remedial initiatives will states and local districts require when that could mean, if they're the most aggressive forms, it could mean some people lose their job. It could mean conversion to a public charter school. That's what NCLB um, uh, uh, suggested as part of the remedial menu. Um, but then that gets in the way of some of the union uh, imperatives around protecting jobs and that sort of thing. And I'm all about protecting jobs of great teachers doing great things for kids, but if you're not getting the job done for our babies, you shouldn't have that job. And so that transition from 1.0 to 2.0 um, is something that's very concerning to us at DFER, and we're going to be um, fighting very aggressively at the state level to make sure we're doing the right thing for kids. How do you tie some of your work and some of your beliefs into kind of the what I think is one of the over, um, one of the connected threads of this conference about promoting equity and diversity yeah. in terms of uh, educational opportunities, making sure that kids from yeah. 
whatever backgrounds, whatever situations they come from, have the uh, have can access high quality yeah. education. How do you think efforts at promoting equity and diversity have fallen short, and how does it shape uh, your work and what you're trying yeah. to do? Well, yeah, I think first of all, I think I think the imperative of making sure that all children um, have access to a great education is a moral imperative. Um, it's a democratic one in terms of what who who we aspire to be as a country, and so regardless of your background, regardless of any uh, you know cultural or ethnic or religious or uh, immigration factor, every child is a beautiful human being has has limitless potential and it's the job of, of, of we adults to make sure we create a firm to cultivate that genius and that potential of every child. So that's just a moral absolute uh, for us. And I think we've fallen short in many ways. I mean, we still see large achievement gaps, uh, uh, both in terms of cl uh, economic class. We see large achievement gaps between uh, you know white students and African-American Latino students. We see large achievement gaps between students who speak English as a, as a second language and other students. Uh, we see achievement gaps with, in terms of kids who have disabilities and those who do not. And so we have a lot of work to do there. And then you have some uh, adults who actually, who actually don't believe in the full capacity of all children. So they may articulate that they do, but they really don't. And so some, they may think certain kids aren't college material or some certain kids because they grew up poor, maybe they can't learn at the highest levels. Maybe they can't make it to college. So if they don't, then that's okay. And so we, we rebel against that aggressively. Uh, we push uh, to make sure every child is college and career ready when they, when they leave high school. Uh, and then we push higher ed institutions to make sure that they're cultivating kids so they can graduate right. from school. You believe every child should graduate high school ready for college, but do you believe every kid should go to college? I do, personally, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, you know, um, or if there's a career that they can, they can enter into that will really create a pathway for lifelong uh, economic independence and learning. I'm skeptical of that. I really tend to think that you need to go graduate from college because our labor market changes on a very dynamic basis, and technology, frankly, is disrupting our economy and, and globalization as well. And so my view is that minimum you need a college degree. And because I think all kids are amazing and have limitless potential, I'm not even impressed with college. College means all of that. So when I say I expect every child to graduate from college, um, that's the minimum for me because I actually think these kids are world changers. So for me, I believe college graduation at minimum is what these kids need to be competitive in the global economy. And because I think the children are so great, college, that, that's not even, to me, that's not even ambitious enough. That, that's, that's like a baseline foundational goal. If you're breathing, you need to be able to graduate from college. And there's a lot of colleges, um, you know, it's not that hard to graduate from college as long as we, as we cultivate the potential talent that you have. And so, uh, and we have to do that across the board. And unfortunately, we also have tons of ethnic and cultural stereotypes where we actually don't believe all kids can achieve at the highest level, and that's something we fight hard against. Uh, you just raised uh, a point about technology, about driving, you know, the, the changes that are going to be happening in the global workforce. Uh, just so happens we are here in the Silicon Valley. There's yeah, a lot of technologists amongst yeah, the uh, talk, uh, speakers and the audience today. Yeah. What do you think technology can make an impact in terms of making education more equitable or accessible? Or what do you think technology is limited? In the well, I think technology has a great impact in terms of um, uh, one twenty four seven learning for kids because for, for, for oftentimes low income families uh, where they may have single parents who are working a lot. Uh, outside of the, in, in addition to what we have to do within the school building to, to improve education, oftentimes outside of the school, whether it's after school, whether it's summers, whether it's weekends, uh, kids can lose learning because they may not be in settings where they're getting 
supplemental programs to cultivate their brain and cultivate their genius. And so I think technology can play a huge role there. I think technology can play a huge role within the school building to accelerate um, best practices of, around pedagogy and instruction throughout the country. And so that each teacher doesn't have to be in his or her own classroom trying to figure it out, but that they can leverage instantaneously um, through technology, best practices and best teaching around, um, you, you name the subject matters. I think, I think that's very important as well. Then I think customization. I think personalized learning, uh, leveraging technology uh, can enable kids to learn faster and in a more durable way uh, to the extent they're getting customized instruction and pedagogy that speaks to exactly where they are in a particular discipline. Um, and so I think in all of these different ways, technology can really be a game changer. And then we have to make sure everybody has access to the technology as well and that people know how to use it, whether it's the teachers who are using it, whether it's the children who are using it, whether it's the families. Uh, because for some folks, technology can, can be scary. And so we have to kind of educate the adults as well so they're comfortable, and the kids, so they're comfortable using the technology. Although I think the kids get it already. I, mean, I have an 11 to 9-year-old, and I mean, every, you know, every time I see what they have on, they have so many gadgets. Right. Uh, there's always a new app or something that they're using. So I think the kids, they seem to be able to get it more naturally, so we have to get the adults equally as comfortable. How are we going to know when our country has made meaningful progress in making educational opportunities more equitable? Uh, when every child in our country has access to world-class education. And I think until then, uh, we're not where we need to be. Now, in terms of meaningful progress, the closer, as long as we're progressing toward that goal, um, then we'll see we're making progress. Um, and we need, to we need to be very relentless about measuring that uh, on a regular basis. I mean, part of the concern we have with the ESSA um, is that you have some force out there that actually want to do away with the annual assessments and measurement. But if we don't have the data, we don't even know if we're making progress toward that goal. Uh, but the goal for, for us is every child in this country have access to a world-class education, and we need to measure that, and then we need to set very specific benchmarks so year after year we're seeing progress toward that goal. Specifically, what are a couple of these measures, what, what, what are you going to, what are the most important measures you think exist today? Well, I think longitudinally, um, college graduation is, is critical, um, and, I, and I believe all of the other assessments have to be designed to to set kids up. They need to be kind of um, leading indicators of whether or not we're on path uh, uh, for kids to graduate from college, uh, you know, on time and, and ready for the, for the workforce and ready for the world beyond. And so I think annual assessments toward that goal. I, mean, I think we have to assess where our kids are. And kids, kids have always been assessed. I mean, that's why it's always interesting to me some of the, the alleged controversies we've had around assessment. Kids have always been assessed. But now we're simply saying rather than each teacher come up with his or her own pop quiz or assessment, we're going to have common assessments so we can really see across the country, uh, are we preparing for our children uh, to, be, to be competitive, to be successful? And so I think we have to continue to do that. We're very excited that ESSA continues to have that requirement. Uh, but unfortunately now each state can come up with their own assessment. And, and, and that's not ideal for having a comparability across states and across our country uh, to make sure our entire country is moving in the right direction. And so that's where we would be. We're not there yet, but we're going to keep pushing until we do get there. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's everything for today, listeners. Keep up the good work. And please do fill out our survey at bit.ly slash air. I'm Blake Montgomery, and I hope you'll check out our coverage of the Maker Movement coming out this week. Thanks for listening. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.